0: Well, good morning again, John chapter 6, and Jesus has been building up to something. He's not just reiterating the gospel message, though he is doing that, Then it's all about belief, right? They came to him and said, what are the works of God? And he turned around and made that singular and said, this is the... Work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. There's nothing that you can do in the flesh to be saved. There's no amount of times you can go to church. There's no prayer you can pray. There's no good deeds you can do. No amount of money can buy it. It's just believing in him. So he's reiterating it, but he's not just reiterating it. He's also illustrating it. He's painting a picture for us, a metaphor, so that we can understand really what it involves, what it entails. He told us what saving faith looks like. He said we must eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. Some people scoffed at that. What he meant was that we have to partake. Like we do a good meal, we got to dig in, that he's got to become a part of us. You know, people say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. I'm into the Jesus thing. But then they live their lives where pretty much do they never think about him or do what he's asked them to do or obey him or serve him. Jesus said if you're going to believe him, he's got to become lord of your life. Lord means ruler. That's what belief looks like. That's why he said it's like partaking. It's like Soaking it up, digging in, becoming a part of you. Don't say you believe if you're unwilling to make him Lord. Because that's what belief really genuinely looks like. But he wasn't just reiterating the gospel message. He wasn't just illustrating the gospel message. He's building up to something here as we climax at the end of the chapter. And he's building up by tearing down in a way, interestingly enough he's actually whittling down the crowd. He wasn't just reiterating, he wasn't just illustrating, he is separating. He is getting down to the true believers. I remember my freshman year, I played football. One year, that was it. My dad was a big football guy, played in college and that kind of thing. And you'll see him next week and you'll understand how he could have played some college football. He's about 70 now, but I think Mike and I together could still not take him. No way. His favorite uh, game is go ahead and and hit me, but don't hurt your hand. That's always been his favorite game. So he was into football, but I, yeah, that wasn't really my thing. I played one year. But I had been told all about this phenomenon, football, maybe you've heard about it, called summer two-a-days. Yeah, summer two-a-days. That's where you show up in the hot sun wearing these pads and running and sweating and banging heads against other students and having some coach scream at you in your face, no water breaks, for about three hours. Then you sit down for about a half hour, rest for a little bit, come back that same day and do it all over again for another three hours, two a days. And some students find along the way that maybe they're not so committed to football after all. That's kind of why the coach does what the coach does. To see who really wants to play ball when it's all said and done. Sort of their way of separating the men from the boys. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is doing here in John chapter 6. He's whittling down the believers. Now, you might say, why would Jesus want to whittle down believers? Because he knows that many of them are not really believers. Right? Many of them were following him only for materialistic reasons. The chapter began with that famous scene, that miracle where he fed the 5,000. Right? And afterwards, after that incredible event in which he took two fish and five barley loaves, and turned them into a meal for at least 5,000 men and probably upwards of 10,000 people, the next day they should have gone to Jesus and gone, wait a minute, how did you do that? Or even more importantly, who are you that you could do that? But what did they do? They went to him and said, can you do that again? And can you keep doing it for us time and time again so that we don't have to work anymore? You see, they were more interested in what he could give them than in who he actually was. So they start talking to him, and that's what we've been seeing in this chapter. And when they kind of find out who he is and what his expectation is and what he says salvation looks like, you're going to see in our chapter this morning that many of them choose instead to walk away. They decide that that commitment is too much. They reject his word and go back To the world. That's the choice that many of them make. And let's just begin very seriously this morning by saying everybody in here probably knows someone who has made that choice down throughout the years that have decided to reject God's word in favor of the world. And make no mistake, when you reject God's word, you are, by definition, accepting the world. And, you know, I'll even take it one step further this morning. God forbid that it would happen. But it's possible in a room this size, we all know, that there may be followers in this group someday that choose to reject God's word and go back into the world. We pray that that wouldn't happen to any of us. But there's a serious, sober warning in the text this morning. And we ought to take it for what it is because he's been building up to this. He's been whittling down this crowd. How has he done it? Well, he's been saying hard things. We saw last time he began by saying things like, you gotta eat my flesh and drink my blood. Well, he continues to say hard things. Now, interesting to note though, as we pick up where we left off last time, that he's not just saying hard things on some remote hillside out in the middle of nowhere. Look what it says at verse 59 as we begin here this morning. He says these things, he said, in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. That's important because it's not like it was just some radical discipleship workshop directed at a few who he thought would really be doing the work of God, the ones that he had chosen down throughout the years. He said these things in church. Keep that in mind as this whole story sort of unfolds here this morning. It says in verse 60, therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? See, by Jesus likening saving faith to eating and taking in food, he was really raising the bar, right? He was saying that we must partake, he was demanding a consuming kind of faith. When you eat food, it goes inside of you and becomes an innermost part of your being. He's saying that's what true saving faith looks like. Well, some of the people who had hung around and heard what Jesus had to say said, wow, this is a hard saying. And the word hard there means harsh or rough or offensive. And it's more likely that they they were offended by what he said than that they didn't understand what he said. They may have said, well, who can understand it? But really in their hearts, They were offended by what he said. All of the sudden, that fresh bread from heaven began to be stale and crunchy as they began to chew on it a little bit. You ever done that before? Grab something thinking it was something else, sticking it into your mouth? That's an interesting phenomenon, right? If I blindfold you, I could put chocolate in your mouth, but if you think salmon's coming, it just doesn't go over so well. It's a strange thing. That's exactly what's happening to these folks. They were expecting something different. And not just the Jews. Remember when John says the Jews, he's referring to the Jewish leaders. Not just the Jewish leaders this time, it says, but many of his disciples, or at least so-called disciples, are having a hard time digesting what Jesus is telling them. And suddenly, they are confronted with a difficult choice to make. So are we sometimes, aren't we? As Christians, when you're confronted with truth, when a brother brings a harsh word, or a ministry leader says a rough saying to you or to me, or when even from the pulpit you hear something that you find offensive, do I reject it because I don't like it, because it's not what I was expecting, A lot of people think that church is always just supposed to be encouraging. Aren't we supposed to go to church and just always be encouraged? I don't know whoever got the idea that that was the case. We certainly didn't get that from Jesus. That's not what he demonstrated to any of us. You go to these church growth conferences today, and the big failure is to drive the crowds away. The big failure is to offend The big failure is to say anything that's not light and uplifting, where they might not go home happy. Listen, Jesus was seeker-sensitive in that he came to seek and save that which was lost. But he did it by preaching the truth. He didn't water down anything. He didn't massage anything. He wasn't afraid to offend. Sometimes the truth hurts, but it oftentimes opens the door or a door in my life for life. You go to the doctor and you have cancer. I want to know about it. Don't tell me I'm fine when in reality I'm not. Some of the most important lessons that we've heard in life were hard at first to hear. Were harsh to listen to. Years ago, I had a doctor just a couple years ago. Dr. Doug. He's a Christian man, committed to the Lord. He said, Joe, we got to do something about your blood pressure. I'm going to put you on medicine. I said, isn't that somewhat seeker-sensitive of you, Dr. Doug, to just go straight to the medicine? He said, no, well, I'd tell you to get on a treadmill, but you won't. (laughs) So I'm not being seeker-sensitive. You take the medicine. You know, at first it kind of offended me when he said that. And don't get me wrong, don't get me wrong. I'm not the example of anything. But since then, I have been exercising and a long ways to go. I don't need the medicine today because he challenged, because he offended me, because what he said was rush. Very difficult to hear. Now, hanging around all of you with the food that we eat on a regular basis. I may have to go out on the medicine after all. Keep in mind, as you grow in faith and in your knowledge of the scriptures, you're going to hear things down throughout the years that will be hard to hear, that will be difficult to take in. Just know in advance that God knew that that was going to come, that he anticipated it, that it's there for a reason, that as we continue here in the text, that once again Jesus is not surprised that they feel this way, right? He knew the hearts of his hearers. Verse 61, when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? In other words, when I say that faith looks like eating my flesh and drinking my blood, does that offend you? Will you still choose to be offended if when you hear reports and when you see me ascend to heaven, will you still choose to be offended, In other words, once we find out that what I was telling you all along is true, when it's been completed, when there's victory, and when he ascends to heaven, are you still going to choose to be offended? You see, the ascension of Christ was not just some victory rap, lap. It wasn't like a curtain call. It communicated something that the Father was pleased with what Jesus had done. That was the climax of his time here. That he came, that he preached the word, that he went to the cross, that he rose from the dead, and that he appeared to the disciples afterwards. The ascension is the Father agrees with everything that happened here. And so what Jesus is saying is, are you still going to choose to be offended at that point? Maybe you ought to just get over it. If it's true, does it really matter if it's offensive? This is something that I know he's speaking to unbelievers, trying to get them to understand the gospel message, and most of us here this morning are believers. But this is something we could learn a thing or two from, can't we? We're not real good at hearing criticism. We could get better at that. In fact, Matthew Henry once said, those who stumble at smaller difficulties should consider how they will get over greater ones. If they're offended by the fact that he said He was going to offer his flesh and sacrifice his blood. And that's what he came to do. How much more will they be offended when they actually see him do it at Calvary? That's why a few of the New Testament authors say that the cross is a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. Not just because it was so gruesome, but because it communicated something so gracious. That he had to go to the cross because of the state that you and I were in that that's how big of a price had to be paid for our sins. That communicates to us that we're bankrupt in and of ourselves, that you cannot come to God on the basis of your goodness. It offends my pride. It offends my ego. And that's why we can't in church just encourage. If we only simply do nothing but encourage, we'll never talk about hell, we'll never talk about blood, we'll never talk about sin. And that would be an incomplete message. And you know what? If we do that, we might attract a crowd, but we won't ever identify the true believers. So important. Jesus challenges this tendency to be offended by his message. Nevertheless, he's gracious. So what does he do here? He provides some clarity in verse 63. This could be the theme statement for the entire discourse. It says, it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh prophets, nothing. I want anybody that's in ministry to underline this verse. If you're a Christian, you've been called in the ministry, so you underline this verse. Make a mental note if you don't have a pen with you. The flesh, prophets, nothing. The New Testament has nothing good to say about the flesh. Romans says there's nothing good in it. Philippians says we should have no confidence in it, whether we're talking about Parenting or preaching, whether we're talking about the work you do out there or the worship that we do in here, there is no prophet in the flesh. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It's by his spirit. That's why he continues here by saying at the end of verse 63, the words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. In other words, What he's been talking about, this concept of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, it's to be taken spiritually and not literally. The flesh profits nothing. So eating Jesus' physical flesh, physically drinking his blood would profit nothing. Nothing that you do in your flesh profits towards everlasting life. That's what he's trying to communicate to us. I hinted at this just a little bit last week when we were celebrating communion. Maybe you remember we were talking just a little bit about the fact that some churches today teach that, in fact, Jesus was not teaching metaphorically, but that this discourse is meant to be taken literally. I was reading an article from an author who did a good job, poured his heart out onto the text, but was wrong. His argument essentially was that because Jesus was being repetitious over and over again saying we heard it several times you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood his argument is that that must mean that he's trying to get us to understand that it's literal almost as if he was saying what part of eat and drink don't you understand and so the suggestion then since he's talking about everlasting life is that more is required for salvation than simple belief alone that's what this author was writing about you know, there are churches that teach this doctrine. It's called transubstantiation. You don't have to know how to spell it or say it. Transubstantiation. The idea is you're in a church, priest gives you the, the bread and the wine, and at that moment in time, it literally becomes the body and blood of Jesus Christ. I have a problem with this teaching for several reasons. I'll give you three of them so that we don't spend all morning on it, just so you have a little bit of ammunition to know why we don't believe that. First of all, it goes against the Old Testament law. The Old Testament strictly prohibited the consumption of human flesh or blood, period. Why would Jesus come on the scene and encourage people to do something that he said you can't do? Jesus is the word of God. He wouldn't tell you to do something and turn around and say to do it in the New Testament. That's number one. Number two, this man who writes this article says that the repetition of John six argues that we must take what he was saying literally. How about the repetition of the entire book? Of John how about the repetition of the entire Bible that belief is all that you need and that you don't have to complete the sacraments or do these rituals or say these prayers in order to be saved let's just look at what we've seen so far really quickly in the book of John John chapter 1 but as many as received him to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. How about John chapter 3? That whoever believes in him should not perish. Same wording in verse 16. Whoever believes in him should not perish. Verse 18. He who believes in him is not condemned. John chapter 5. Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. And then three times in this chapter alone. Verse 29. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Verse 40, and this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. And then last time, verse 47, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. What part of believe in me do you not understand? Over and over and over again. Finally, the third point comes from this verse that we just read in verse 63. The flesh profits nothing. I looked that word up in the original language. The word nothing means nothing. It doesn't mean nothing. It means nothing. Whatever. It's not that it doesn't mean anything. It means nothing. It means what it says that it means. There is nothing that you can do in the physical realm to contribute to your salvation. It's kind of simple. It's glorious. It's awesome. It took an incredible sacrifice, but it's not complicated Nevertheless, verse 64, he said to them, but there are some of you who do not believe. I'll just say it one more time. If partaking of his flesh and blood was required, he would say, but there are some of you who refuse to eat my flesh and drink my blood. But he's still talking about belief over and over and over again. Why is he talking about belief? Because it's all about belief. Notice as he continues, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my father. Back to what we were talking about a few weeks ago. This is why he didn't argue with anyone. No one can come to him unless it's been granted by the father. He's talking about cannibalism. No, but he's not going to debate it with them because you can only come if it's been granted by the Father. He knew from the beginning who was going to believe and who was not going to believe. What is he doing? He's whittling down the crowd. He's separating. He's getting to the believers. He's separating the men from the boys, the deserters from the true disciples. And why would we expect our Bible teachers to do anything different? We're not trying to attract a crowd here. Great if they come. Praise the Lord. Whoever wants to come. Come one, come all. But we're not trying to attract followers. We're trying to identify believers who want to be disciples. Big difference between a follower and a believer. You want followers, set up a Twitter account. You have followers right away. There are people that have millions of followers on Twitter that don't even like them. Some people follow people just to because they're in the media and they want the gossip. They want the dirt about this person. So they follow Ashton Kutcher on Twitter. Awesome. (laughs) Jesus doesn't care about any of that stuff. He was trying to whittle down to the believers. He said this, not my words, his words. He said, don't think that I've come to bring peace, but a sword. Not to say that the message of Jesus isn't one of peace. You receive it into your heart and there is nothing like that. Peace. Nothing like that peace. But he said he came to bring a sword. The sword suggests that he's going to divide to separate between those who choose him and those who reject him. And sad to say that in this group right here, not this group, in this group in the text, most of them are going to choose, you know the story, right, to reject him. I find it only somewhat... Curious and interesting that this verse is chapter 6, verse 66. The mark of the beast in the tribulation is not given to people because they were swindled into it. It's because they had made a choice in their mind to reject Christ. So it says in verse 66, from that time many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. And we know people, people that probably should be here this morning that left years ago, people that went back into their old lifestyle and into the world. Parable of the sower. You know the parable of the sower, right? Describe different types of believers as different types of soil that a uh, farmer would sow seed on and how they react to that soil. And one of the um, types of soil, is a a rocky or a shallow ground. It's representative of a believer that willingly receives the gospel at first with joy, but because they're not deep-rooted, they fall away as soon as there are problems. They fall away as soon as they have problems, and the the Lord doesn't just jump in right away and fix them, or because they hear a hard word or a harsh saying, just like this crowd right here. It was disappointed because he wouldn't uproot Rome or because he wouldn't just give them bread on and on and on so that they didn't have to work and so in the end they weren't really ready for the kind of commitment that Jesus was talking about these guys didn't walk away because they went well we can't partake of you until you die so we'll come back later they walked away because they understood that he was asking for a commitment that they weren't willing to give they wanted stuff they wanted him to provide they didn't want to follow him They don't want to follow after him. C.S. Lewis provides a great illustration from his own life to describe how people respond to the gospel. He said that when he was a child and he had a toothache, he knew that he could go to his mom and his mom would provide him something to deaden the pain and help him sleep at night. But he said he would only go to his mom when there was a lot of pain because he knew that although he never doubted that his mom would give him the aspirin, He also knew that his mom would make him do what he didn't want to do the next day, which is go to the dentist. He could not get what he wanted from his mom without getting from his mom that which he didn't want. To go to the dentist and have his teeth set permanently right. That's what he didn't want. Jesus is not interested in being a temporary remedy in our lives. Can you imagine the God of the universe wanting to take care of your toothache when your soul is perishing? That's not how he works. He's going to allow whatever to come into my life to come into my life so that I have the best crack at everlasting life that I possibly can. But for some people, that reality is so disappointing that he won't first just bless me That he won't just first knock my socks off with blessing. He must not be real. That's what they choose to believe instead. And so, in this scene right here, they all bail. What a scene. A bunch of wannabe followers leaving Jesus because their motives had been checked. So then, verse 67, Jesus said to the 12, Do you also want to go away? But... He knew the answer to that question, right? Right? He's God. He knew the answer to that question. So why did he ask the question? Ah, but this is the glorious side of whittling down the crowd. He asked the question so that they would know that they had that kind of commitment. So that they would understand that they were willing to partake, to consume him to allow him to be in the innermost part of our being. There were a group of Christians years ago in communist Russia at the height of sensitivity against the gospel. So they were meeting privately, secretly underground one day when a bunch of soldiers came in with guns, waving their guns and threatening and demanding that all of the non-Christians leave right away. And the inference was, look what's gonna be coming for those of us Christians that stay. Well, some of the people left that morning and then those Russian soldiers put their guns down and went, good. We know that being a Christian is dangerous and so we wanted to make sure that we were gonna fellowship with true believers. Wow, to be in the room that day and to have made the choice To stay, what a confirmation of faith. To have made that choice to look those guns in the eye and go, I'm staying. I'm staying because I know I believe. And sometimes God says things to us that are hard so that as we hang around down throughout the years, we get to see that we're really in it for the long haul. That our commitment really is real it's for our benefit so that we know where we're at with him he refines our faith that way as he was refining the faith of the disciples when he turned to them and said do you also want to go away but verse 68 Simon Peter answered him Lord this is wonderful isn't it Lord to whom shall we go where else would we go What else is there? Unbelievable. Pastor David Guzik once said, and this is a challenge also, so listen, if we have not come to the place where we can look to God and say, where else would I go, even in hard and confusing times, then we have not come very far with Jesus. Following Jesus, though at times hard, is preferred above every alternative. Following Jesus is the hardest way to live, except for all the other ways to live. (laughs) That's good. It's the hardest way to live, except for every other way to live, which is far, far more difficult. Peter would agree the choice is clear, because he says to Jesus, end of verse 68, you have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter sometimes says things that makes us sigh or cringe, and then every once in a while, he just trips into something brilliant, First of all, by saying, to whom shall we go? Where else could we go? Awesome. He didn't get that on his own. The Lord showed him that. Then also here in verse 69, when he says, we have come to believe and know. You know why? Because it's always in that order. You first believe, and then you come to know. Too many people want to know first. Well, if you just prove it to me, if I just know conclusively, then I'll believe. What would there be to believe at that point if you already knew? So no, he doesn't do it that way. It's interesting, in Hebrews chapter 11, that's a section of scripture known as the Hall of Faith. It talks about some of the faith, of some of the great heroes of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and Moses, and David. Listen to what it says about them. It says that these all died in faith, not having received the promises, not having received the promises, but believing in them afar off were assured of them. You see, those Old Testament patriarchs, they didn't get to see the fulfilled prophecy of the Messiah like we have. So they had to put their trust and believe without knowing. Great lesson for you and for me. And if there are people in the room and you've been walking with the Lord for any length of time, you know that what you've done was you first believe and down throughout the years, you've come to know. To know that you know that you know. That's what he does for us. Powerful proclamation of Peter that he would say something like that. But he's still Peter. So although he hit the nail on the head, he also did make a mistake. Those of you who have finished reading the chapter, you know. He spoke for the 12 when he said, We have come to believe when in reality not all of we did in fact believe. Jesus points that out. Jesus answered them. Verse 70 Did I not choose you, the 12, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the 12. Isn't it interesting how Peter was so sure that we have come to believe this? Shows you how convincing Judas was. One of the original 12 chosen by the Lord to minister and serve alongside him. Yet we know he would betray the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. And for the rest of your life, every time you hear 30 pieces of silver, you think to yourself, how could anyone betray the Lord over a lousy 30 pieces of silver? But what amount would be enough to betray the Lord over? And have I not, Joe Shu, personally rebelled from God for relatively less Yes. And we all know someone who was in the church who was just starting to get it. Saw God work and heard his words and they knew it was true and yet they still chose to reject him anyway. Either because they were offended by the word or they were attracted to the world. One way or the other a rejection of God's word results in an acceptance of the world, and so they walk away. That's what happens. So there's a need for self-examination this morning. 2 Corinthians says, examine yourselves to see that you are in the faith. If you have any doubt at all whatsoever as to whether you're in the faith this morning, please come talk to me afterwards. Don't leave here. If you have any doubt at all whatsoever, come talk to me afterwards. you never given your life to Jesus Christ? Let's talk. You said a prayer, Long, long time ago, but you've been wayward. You're not so sure. You want to recommit your life to God? It's a good thing. Examine yourself. The psalm says, Lord, search my heart because we're going to hear hard things. The Bible is filled with hard things. You know, those journals that we keep at home, or when you put like those post its on the refrigerator? What kind of verses do we put on the refrigerator or in our journal? Or in our wallet. It's all good stuff. Not many of us put up on our refrigerator, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. <laughs> not many of us in our journal have written everywhere, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. That's not the focus. That's not our emphasis. But those promises, listen, those promises are just as important as the ones that we like so much Because those are the ones that stretch, that test, that challenge, and that strengthen us for the battle. Two-a-days. Because remember, the benefit of two-a-days is not for the coach as much as it is for the player, so that the player knows that he's endured and that he's ready to go to war with his brethren. Listen, we either reject the world and cling to the word or we reject the word and we turn to the world. But I want you to know something this morning, and I know 99% of you do, but maybe we need to be reminded of it. And maybe there's someone here who doesn't know it. If you reject the word and you go out into the world, I promise you there's nothing there that will satisfy I promise you that you have been created to be satisfied only by him, and that everything you think is out in the world that's so glorious is actually a facade, and it's actually found in him. I'm not suggesting that we all need to go out and have a prodigal moment in order to have the same appreciation that the prodigal son had, but you know the story. He thought he was missing out on life. Give me my inheritance now. Because he wanted clothes and jewelry. And he wanted to party. And he wanted plenty to eat and drink. And he went out there. You know what happened, right? You know how it all unfolds. He went out there. He got sick of it. He spent all of his money. And at the end, it was all he could do. All he wanted just to share a meal with pigs. And that must be what it looks like from the father's perspective when I choose to reject the life that he's laid out for me in favor of whatever the world can offer me for a lousy 30 pieces of silver. When that prodigal son came back, what did his father do? Think about the things that he went after in the world. He came back and the father put a ring on his finger. He put a robe on his back, he put shoes on his feet, he killed the fatted calf, and they had a big party. What was Jesus communicating? He was communicating to you and to me that in our Father's house is everything and more than anything we would ever want out there. Where else would we ever want to go? Who else would we ever want to go to? Lord, thank you for...